When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The foundations of trade are shifting. For years, trade was about securing efficiency, stability and growth. But today, other objectives are driving negotiations and demanding attention, with consequences that will ripple throughout the global economy. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, and coming up on today's show... We'll hear from Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela, Director General of the World Trade Organization, about a complicated history and an even more contested future. Should trade and should WTA be part of the solution or is it part of the problem? My thesis is it's part of the solution, but the devil is in the detail of how you put these designs together. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai on where she thinks the current rules-based system falls short, particularly when it comes to China. The vision for a rules-based trading system based on market principles has fallen down or has become a mismatch with the reality we have where not everyone can benefit from these rules in the same way. And Pamela Koch-Hamilton of the International Trade Center on the winners and losers of this new era. It's the only platform, the only space that we have to be able to engage at a multilateral level on international trade. But first, ask an economist and they'll tend to agree that freer trade is a good thing. About 10 years ago, a group of prominent economists was asked whether they agreed that freer trade improved efficiency, gave consumers more choice, and that long-term, these benefits outweighed any effect on employment. Nearly all said that it did. One even replied, if that's not right, almost all of economics is wrong. After the Second World War, most political leaders converged towards that view. They cut tariffs, agreed trade deals and tried to protect trade from being caught up in fights about other issues. Their work took trade from around 30% of global GDP in the early 1970s to 60% by the start of the 2010s. And with more trade came higher living standards. But now that march towards liberalisation and the benefits it brings are under threat. To find out how and why it matters, I'm joined by Samaya Keynes, the author of a special report on the world economy in this week's edition of The Economist. Samaya, welcome to Money Talks. Thank you for having me. Now, Samaya, I know you have a long-standing interest in how trade shapes the world. You're now our Britain economics editor, but regular listeners will know you were previously The Economist's trade and globalisation editor. You also have your own podcast called Trade Talks, which is a bit of a giveaway that you think this is really important. But why does the way the architecture of trade is changing particularly matter now? Well, I should say it's not just me and my interest. It has also always mattered to The Economist, which was, of course, founded to campaign for freer trade, 
But the question of why this matters now, with the immediate disruption of the pandemic out of the way, although there are still supply chain issues going on, with President Donald Trump in the rearview mirror, there's a question of, okay, well, well, what are we left with after all of these years of um, excitement in the world of trade? And I think underneath that, there is this fundamental shift in what trade policy is really for. The priorities have changed. Trade policy is, is being used as a vehicle to achieve lots of objectives other than simply promoting trade and, and encouraging efficiency. It's being used as this vehicle to help the environment, to protect human rights, to deliver on geopolitical objectives, um, like the big fight between the US and China. And so I think now is this this really good time to sort of stand back and say, okay, well, what can trade policy achieve? What are the limits on what it can achieve? And what are the risks? Because trade is so important for the health of economies, politicians did try for a time to keep trade negotiations separate from those on other issues. But obviously, it's not quite that simple. How new is this really? When did the when did that kind of attempt to separate trade policy from other areas start? Yeah, it really is a complicated history. Trade policy has always been used to achieve non-trade objectives. I spoke to Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, who's the Director General of the World Trade Organization, or the WTO, and she wanted to be very clear about this historical context and what politicians had in mind when they created the framework that preceded the WTO. Um, That's what's known as as the GATT, or, or the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Um, That was founded in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. At the beginning, you know, post-World War, things like employment were seen as domestic policy issues. It was still mostly about liberalization and using trade post-World War II as a means of peace. But then again, Somaya, you know, trade was seen as one of the instruments for achieving peace post-World War. That's a non-trade objective. That's actually a security objective. Uh, And the whole thing about how uh, post-World War II was how do we prosper together? And trade was seen as a means of that prosperity and bringing people together. And, you know, instead of zero sum, we are all in it together. We all have something to gain. The idea was that the trade liberalization was complementary to other objectives. Trade integration could promote peace. And by that same measure, that same principle, there was also a realization that it would be unhelpful for geopolitical fights to spill into the trade arena. They should actively be kept separate. And then building on that, there was this idea that it would be better to manage trade disputes within a rules-based framework. And that idea, that principle, that led to the creation of the WTO in 1995, The really key innovation is that they had this system of settling trade disputes. When countries disagreed, they would make a formal complaint and then an independent panel of lawyers would judge whether there had been rule breaking um, and kind of make sure that the response to all of that was contained and didn't spill over into political fights. There were also various principles on what you could and couldn't do when trying to achieve other objectives. So, for example, if you were if you were trying to help the environment or, say, as a rich country, if you were trying to protect your labor standards, there were kind of constraints on, on the extent to which you could use trade barriers to achieve those. What was the rationale behind these rules? Why shouldn't trade be used to achieve all sorts of things? 
So the Indian-American economist Jagdish Bhagwati was was very outspoken on this in the 1990s. Um, So here he is actually speaking at a televised debate hosted by the International Forum on Globalization in 1999. You have to see it from a different perspective. These are rules uh, which are devised by member governments. But a lot of us from the poor countries think of these as protection against you guys included. You people are based here in the United States. You're thinking of child labor. I don't know how many children you've seen in my part of the world. Poor children go to work because of poverty. He was worried about using trade as a hammer to punish countries for doing things that they were well within their rights to do. So he argued that poorer countries might have different environmental standards or labor standards that matched their particular level of development. And he warned about rich country producers trying to shut foreigners out because essentially they they couldn't handle the competition. We in India look upon the WTO as a defense of the weak to protect us from from you people, uh, right? And to have a more symmetric view of labor standards, environment rights, and so on. Don't come at us through the WTO, okay? Don't do that. Now again... These objectives are seen as complementary. If poorer countries trade more, then the idea is that they'll grow, their living standards will increase, and they'll demand these higher standards. And so this is a consequence of enabling freer trade, not blocking trade with those who who don't already comply with what standards you hold domestically as, say, a richer country. Now, as you hinted at the start, that consensus that these secondary objectives should be kept separate from trade negotiations has now changed. Why has that happened? I think there's growing scepticism about the older approach. Here's Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela again. The point is that there was so much focus on trade liberalization and what that could bring to the extent that even the WTO tenet that trade is about people, it's about creating employment, it's about, you know, now trade became a negotiating thing, trade for trade itself and liberalization of trade, that's what it's all about. Getting these multilateral agreements became the thing. So I think something happened because trade was so successful post-World War II, led to so much prosperity, and people just then forgot about the other aspects of trade. So that's my thesis. It became a little bit of a victim of its own success. To add a bit more context, I think there was essentially a general backlash There's a perception that globalization has yielded very unequal benefits. There are problems with the multilateral rules-based system. Because there were so many members, it became very difficult to get new agreements. And so essentially you just had these independent lawyers ruling on things that were agreed a longer and longer time ago and countries getting increasingly irate that they want to change the rules. And that's just not a sustainable system. The Trump administration had long-standing concerns with the WTO, and their impression was that America would do better under a power-based system. It was big enough that it could use its power essentially to do what it wanted, and other countries would have to fall into line. And I think that with the Trump administration gone, there's just no political consensus within America for more trade liberalization. What do you think convinced former free traders that they were giving too much away? 
I could spend several hours diagnosing the various problems. Perhaps some of the issue was that people tried to put things into trade deals that shouldn't have been there. Intellectual property concerns were one example. I think there's another problem, which is that there's a perception that essentially faceless bureaucrats shouldn't be constraining the sovereignty of countries. I mean, sovereignty is a word that we heard a lot around the time of Brexit. But more generally, you know, if governments want to help the environment, then they should be able to do so however they want. Finally, there are just very strong political dynamics at work that mean that politicians are increasingly looking inward, a sense that China's stolen a few people's lunch and now America, even the EU, need to be much more muscular in nourishing particular industries so that they can compete with these heavily, heavily subsidised Chinese industries. So all these forces have come together to make the idea of trade liberalisation just much, much less attractive to today's politicians. Now, the increasing insularity and the complaints against the global trading system were intensifying, if you like, even before the pandemic. What has COVID-19 meant for the shift in how governments think about trade policy? When the pandemic first struck, you definitely heard a lot of complaints that this meant that globalisation had gone too far. There's so much global interconnectedness, so many vulnerable supply chains. Uh, perhaps we need to do things that that wind those back a bit. Now, one of the people I spoke to for this report is Lloyd Armbrist. He's a serial entrepreneur in Austin, Texas. And when the pandemic was raging and there was a global shortage of face masks, he spied an opportunity. The problem just seemed like a really dumb problem to have for one of the greatest countries in the world. And so we started, I think, in April of last year, putting our mask machines together. And uh, the first mask came off the line on May 5th. And I remember that date because it was two days after my son was born. So he beat the masks uh, by just a couple of days. But he quickly found that even though he was making masks off an American production line, he was still very reliant on imports. One of the things that happened to, to us is you know, we, we got our first machine in place and then one of the sensors dies. And the sensor, of course, you can only get in Asia. It's actually from Taiwan. And so we're about five days at the fastest shipping during a global pandemic to get our mask machine back up. Meanwhile, like we have everyone calling us from the governor's office to, you know, local grandmas saying, I really desperately need masks. And we have this literally $5 sensor that's standing in the way and we can't get online. And, and it was at that moment that I realized how behind the United States was. Eventually, Lloyd got the sensor that he needed. But then he found himself, having ramped up production, competing with Chinese companies who had also increased their supply. They'd increased their supply by a lot. And they were selling masks to American customers for prices so low that he was asking who was their freight forwarder? How could he get prices that low? And looking at all of that, he warned that without government intervention, America would once again face shortages of crucial protective equipment. And if we don't do something now, we will be there in a year or 10 years or whatever. We need to make some of this locally. We just do. This is just one small example about how 
the the pandemic has led to fears about resilience. Um, a lot of this has come in the context of concerns about U.S.-China interdependencies. We will return to those. I think a lot of the focus in the the pre-pandemic age was on import restrictions. And actually, what we saw in the pandemic was that export restrictions, perhaps they are the the new risk. They can be weaponized. And if you've been told for years and years that you should throw down your borders and and not be self-sufficient in things, and then all of a sudden your trading partners have restricted the export of something, then you're really in a tough spot. I spoke to Pamela Coke-Hamilton, who's the executive director of the International Trade Center, uh, which is an agency of the WTO and the UN, working to help small and medium-sized enterprises, particularly in, in poorer countries. Many countries, remember, were blocked from getting a lot of inputs that they needed for final production because of the restrictions. So that also raised another discussion about how do we prevent this from happening again? Because at the end of the day, we rely on that middle point in order to be able to to reach our final point. And if those are blocked, if those are killed, then it kills the entire value chain or it kills the end of it. So what mechanisms can be put in place to address that? How do we, you know, in the next crisis, which there will be, there's no doubt that this is just the first of many that's going to come. Talking to policymakers, I really got the sense that the trade policy increasingly is being framed by risks rather than than opportunities. It's being framed by this, this drive for resilience. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. How does this sense of insecurity relate to the relationship between America and China? I think rather a lot. In America in particular, you have this blurring of concerns. So you've got economic concerns and national security concerns, and they're just merging in a a fairly murky way. When it comes to the economic concerns, which typically would be dealt with by a trade crowd, uh, we did actually have some news this week that the Biden administration announced that there would be frank conversations between United States trade representative uh, Catherine Tai and her Chinese counterpart. There's a phase one deal which governs relationships between the US and China that was negotiated under the Trump administration. And there's a sense from the Biden administration that China hasn't been living up to its commitments. I spoke to Ambassador Tai this week and I asked her where she thought the the rules-based system had gone wrong in defending American interests, particularly when it comes to China. Let's take the WTO rules. The WTO has a very broad-based membership, 164 uh, countries and economies uh, in the world are members. The WTO rules are really comprehensive. 
And um, in areas, they are really quite aggressive in terms of, for example, uh, subsidies and subsidization. Over time, one of the real challenges that we've had is these rules uh, don't apply to everybody in the same way, or they are not enforceable with respect to every member in the same way. And um, this drives, I think, very much the current energy and recognition around the need for reform at the WTO, the vision for a rules-based trading system based on market principles, promoting liberalized trade between economies that are similarly open has fallen down or has become a mismatch with the reality we have where not everyone can benefit from these rules in the same way. What are some examples of areas where where WTO membership doesn't mean the same thing for everyone? So there are transparency requirements for all WTO members to notify their subsidies to the WTO. That should be the easiest type of commitment to take on. And even there, we see that there isn't consistent compliance and there are no consequences for non-compliance. So then what is the value of that rule? What is the value of being a WTO member? Another area is the special and differential treatment. Now, this is some WTO terminology. It's basically dispensations and accommodations for developing countries. And um, some differentiation certainly makes sense with respect to looking at levels of development. But at the WTO, there are no rules for who is considered a developing country and who isn't. In fact, it's completely based on self-designation. And there's no graduation process either. So here again, not all members are subject to all of the same rules in the same way. And members can decide for themselves how much flexibility they can take by claiming developing country status. So one criticism of the previous administration, the Trump administration, is that when it came to China, there were a lot of tactics deployed, but there wasn't much sense of of the vision or the long-term goal in terms of what US-China relations should look like. Do you have that long-term vision, that long-term idea? Should it look like it does now, which is essentially some managed trade? We've got tariffs, we've got an exclusions process, which is somewhat arbitrary of which companies get exemptions and which ones don't. Or do you want it to look something different from that? In terms of the long-term vision, what we actually achieve will depend on a lot of things, including the choices that we make and the choices that China makes. But um, I I do think that there is a lot of room for us to evolve from where the relationship is now to a place where we can have either a durable coexistence where we are able to tolerate each other (laughs) in the event that uh, we can't really synergize our policies or policy outlooks or, you know, where there can be more synergies The vision that we have is one in which the United States remains a strong leader in in trade and where we can, through our trade policies, coordinated and reinforced with our other policies, create opportunities, take care of our communities, empower our workers and our manufacturers, our farmers, our businesses, and um, where we are also taking care of the earth and sowing seeds for the future generations. 
Do you think that today's trade rules have to adapt or change to to new issues like the environment or human rights? Or do you think that there's enough flexibility already baked in there? Well, let me take reference to another uh, agreement and exercise we did recently on renewing the terms of the NAFTA. The NAFTA was itself from the same era as the WTO. And eventually the coming into being of the USMCA, what you see there does, I think, do a very good job in expressing what we would like to accomplish through trade policy, which is to have really robust provisions that go to how worker protections and environmental standards are a part of the terms of our economic competition uh, and need to be addressed in a way that incentivizes trading partners to raise their standards through their trade as opposed to facilitating or incentivizing the erosion of those standards through trade. Do you think that there are any limits to what trade policy can achieve in that space? I mean, there seems to be a danger that that a lot is being asked of trade policy. Do you agree that there could be some disappointed hopes and dreams or not? Well, I guess uh, the older I get, the more I realize that um, it's important to have hopes and dreams and uh, disappointments are a part of life. But to your specific question here, trade policy needs to be launched at the intersection of our foreign policy and our domestic economic policies. The key is that you can't be doing trade policy on its own or in a policy vacuum. I take your point, you know, trade policy alone uh, can't accomplish everything. But uh, that means that we need to not only take new approaches to our trade policy, but also really commit to ensuring that our trade policies are supported by all of the other policies, including right now working on these transformative domestic investment plans, both for our hard infrastructure and investments in our people. These policies, when put together, I think give us incredible hope in terms of what we will be able to achieve. Samaya, what do you make of Ambassador Tai's responses there? What do you read between the lines? Ambassador Tai really knows her stuff. She is um, super experienced. She's super thoughtful. She's not known for her love of talking on the record in huge amounts of, of detail. I think what I took away from both the speech this week and also our conversation is that she's clearly trying to be very, very careful in how she manages this relationship with China. Uh, She doesn't want to be seen to be trying to escalate any trade tensions. She wants to be seen to be engaging with the World Trade Organization, engaging with the rules-based system. But really, any political capital that there is to be spent in an American context is going to be spent on domestic policy issues. The end goal is still quite opaque, and that means for, for companies, it's still quite uncertain. In terms of other objectives, in terms of using trade policy to defend human rights, that's an issue they're very, very interested in. Um, And here, actually, Ambassador Tai was very important in breaking new ground. There's a trade deal, the USMCA, between the US, Mexico and Canada. That includes new ways of defending Mexicans' right to organize. So how much can trade policy really achieve when it comes to human rights? 
Yeah, well, I think the interesting question is in, in this Mexico case, in the case of the USMCA, how much will this quite narrow and specific enforcement of rules in particular factories affect the broader structural changes that the Americans would like to see in Mexico? I think there's a separate issue, which is much more explosive. Um, and this relates to this issue of, of Xinjiang and China. And there's a growing trend of richer countries blocking imports of products made with forced labor. This is in direct response to this issue in Xinjiang. Now, this is unilateral, unlike the USMCA, which is agreed between the US and Mexico. And so the question of, you know, what can this really achieve? The Chinese Communist Party is not going to change its behavior in response to these trade sanctions. And I think the challenge for the countries applying the restrictions is, if you really want these to be effective, you, you have to know which products are actually affected by the forced labor. And and in practice, when you get down into the weeds of this stuff, it's really, really difficult to know what is affected. I think in the case of Xinjiang, you can make the case that even if it doesn't change the Chinese Communist Party's behavior, it's still justified and the right thing to do to disengage from, from those particular supply chains and those practices. In cases that are less clear cut, the historical argument has always been well, if you just cut off imports from that particular place, will they just lose all their jobs? And maybe they're bad jobs in horrible conditions, but that may not help the workers affected. It can become a very, very complicated question. This one is, I think, less complicated, but practically still very, very tricky. Is it any easier to use trade policy to think about the environmental impact of supply chains? Uh, no, it is also very, very complicated. One reason is that... It is easy for politicians to try to push the costs of environmental protection, of carbon cutting onto other countries. There is something wrong with trade and environment negotiations, which is that often trade negotiators go in thinking that they're haggling over a normal trade deal. Uh, and so they're thinking, OK, well, what concessions can I get from you and how can I avoid making any concessions myself? But that mindset is not conducive to getting a deal where everyone is going to have to make concessions. Here's Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala again. Should trade and should WTA be part of the solution or is it part of the problem? My thesis is it's part of the solution, at least during my time as DG. That's how we are going to, to look at it. Now, that being said, you have things like carbon border adjustment mechanisms, First of all, as an economist, my training is that, look, if we had a global carbon price, we would all be at peace and go about our business, you know, and that would regulate the supply and demand for carbon emissions and things would, you know, work. We don't. We have a fragmented system. Right now we have 68 prices systems. I don't even know. You can call them prices. You know, with carbon emissions at less than a dollar a ton in Ukraine to 130 a ton in Sweden, 68 fragmented systems, and some countries have none. So the way we implement these adjustment mechanisms must be very sensitive to make sure that developing countries in particular do not feel that this is something being put in place in order to hamper their own ability to trade. So that's the key. Can you design a mechanism that could do that? I believe so. But the devil is in the detail of how you put these designs uh, together. What do you see as the risks of incorporating environmental issues into WTO rules? 
I think the final thing to say on this is that as governments develop policies that affect trade and are meant to protect the environment, it's important to set those standards in a way that doesn't accidentally shut out poorer countries who couldn't meet those standards. You can get very well-meaning policies that are essentially protectionist because there just hasn't been enough effort into making sure that everyone is capable of meeting them. Here's Pamela Coke Hamilton. I was here 30 years ago when during the Uruguay round, this issue was raised. And of course, it blew up. (laughs) Everybody was like, hell no, are you kidding me? No way, da da da. And to date, the truth is, it's still a concern. The only difference is that because we are now facing an existential climate crisis, we have to act. But the issue of the concerns expressed 30 years ago are still the concerns today. How will these changes affect our ability to access the markets? How do we ensure that these undertakings made for the right reasons do not have a negative impact on these countries? Samaya, what do you think is going to happen then? What next for the rules-based system of global trade? Well, that is the billion-dollar question. Uh, I think it is fair to say that there is going to be no return to the way things were before President Donald Trump came along. I mean, his team arrived with with a deep discontent with the World Trade Organization, how that was working. Uh, They broke its system of settling disputes by refusing to appoint members of its appellate body. Essentially, there are just no lawyers to hear that final round of appeals if there is a formal dispute. And that means that when America next has a big problem with one of its trading partners, the likelihood is that it will start an investigation, a unilateral investigation into their practices and threaten tariffs. It's super interesting to look at what the EU is doing, because in some senses, they are one of the victims of of all of this. They love the rules-based system. They actually struggle to operate in a power-based system. And so what they've been doing is as the traditional methods of resolving disputes in a very loyally way have been dismantled, they've been gathering new tools to to defend themselves in this new geopolitical age. So they are at the moment exploring something they're calling an anti-coercion instrument. If another country uh, essentially attempts to bully the EU member state, they would be able to threaten to hit back And I think overall, things are just going to be much less predictable. As these other objectives come in, there are going to be conflicts between objectives where trade disputes get politicised and it's going to be much harder to get resolution. And I think there are some real risks to that, particularly for for poorer countries. Here's Pamela Cook-Hamilton of the International Trade Centre again. In, In terms of developing countries, we're takers. Businesses in developing countries, for the most part, are are takers. And so this is even more important because it's the only platform, the only space that we have to be able to engage at a multilateral level on international trade. I just think that there needs to be an honest discussion, a more honest discussion about what the new lay of the land is and how we can recalibrate the WTO to be fit for purpose in in the 21st century. So given all that you've told us, how optimistic are you that the rules-based system can hold up and that it can adapt and benefit the right people? 
Oh, I've been covering trade for too long to be optimistic. Um, it's really, really difficult to look at the WTO as it is today and see an easy path to a reformed WTO where members have agreed a set of mutually binding rules and you've got dispute settlement working. It's going to have to be a fundamental rethink. I think it's going to take a while to get there. And in the meantime, that means much more uncertainty for trade, but also lots and lots of interesting things for for trade nerds to get their teeth into. Well, it's a shame for all of us that you've moved off the trade beat in that case, Sameya. Thank you so much uh, for coming on Money Talks. Thank you for having me. There's so much at stake here, and we've really only scratched the surface. So listeners, do go and check out Samaya's special report. You can read or listen to it in full at economist.com. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, there's a special introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. Our thanks to Catherine Tai, Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, Pamela Coke-Hamilton and Lloyd Armbrust. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also write to us directly at podcasts at economist.com. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. Nico Raufast is our sound engineer. The editor is Sandra Shmorelli. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and in London, this is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.